text for our sermon this morning, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. At this time, we'll call the kids forward. The verses that we just read come from the second chapter of Hebrews. And these verses tell us three very important things about how the gospel has been shown to God's people. Now let's start by explaining that word gospel. The word gospel means good news. The Bible uses this word as a name for the good news that even though we are sinners and should all be hated by God for our sins, God has chosen us to love us as his children and he sent Jesus to die for our sins. We should be the ones to die for our sins, but Jesus died for them. And not only that, Jesus' perfect life, God counts as our life. Now, isn't that good news? It certainly is. Now, the verses that we read kind of repeat what we read a couple of weeks ago from the first chapter of Hebrews about how God taught the gospel to his people. And the first thing that we learn is that God used messengers to teach his people. What is a messenger? A messenger is someone who is sent with a message. If your mom tells you to go call your brothers or sisters to come in to eat supper, you are her messenger, and the message is, mom says it's time to eat. In the Old Testament, we read about men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. We read about David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. These men were chosen by God to bring his word to his people. They were God's messengers to teach the gospel to God's people. So if you open your Bible, the first five books were given to us by God through Moses. God gave Moses these words to write. When we read the Psalms, we are reading songs that God gave to his church through David. Songs that tell us about God's great power and his love for his people. Now I hope you remember our lessons from the past couple Sundays. That Jesus is greater than everything and everyone in the Old Testament because all of those things were really just teaching about him, about Jesus, who is God. So the second thing that our verses teach us is that when Jesus came and preached the gospel, it was very different than when Moses or Isaiah did it. Moses and Isaiah were messengers, but Jesus was not a messenger. He was the one that had sent Moses and Isaiah with the message of the gospel. And the third thing that our verses teach us is that we have to be very careful to listen and believe the message. In the Old Testament, people who ignored God's message through Moses were punished for their disobedience. And our verses tell us that if people who were punished for ignoring a messenger, they will certainly be punished even more if they ignore the one who gave the message. If your older sister 
comes to you and says, stop playing with those cars, pick them up and get ready for bed. You might get angry and go, you're not the boss, you're not mom, you're not dad. But then when your dad or mom comes into the living room a few minutes later and says, why are your cars still scattered all over the floor? I sent your sister in here 10 minutes ago to tell you to pick that mess up. You know you're in trouble. It is sinful to ignore God's messengers, and if it is, then it is much more sinful to ignore God. If you won't listen to God, who will you listen to? There's no one greater for Him to send. No one greater to talk to you. And that means there's no hope for you to be saved. And that's the warning of the verses that we have read. Not believing in Jesus and His work for sinners leaves us with no hope of salvation because there's no one greater than Jesus who can save us. Now we'll pray and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We, however, by nature are, by bl- are blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing Thy Word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our message this morning will build upon what we've seen over the past several weeks, and I hope that it will help uh, clarify the reasoning of chapter 1. So our outline is as follows. The Gospel proclamation, number one, through messengers. Secondly, direct from Christ. And thirdly, the inherent warning. So the Gospel proclamation, number one, through messengers. Let's, I want to reread the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll see the exact same progression described. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Now, you probably noticed that our first point is that the Gospel came through messengers, and our text says the word spoken through angels. First of all, we need to learn a little about that word, angel. The Greek word angelos doesn't necessarily mean a spiritual being. It simply means messenger. The word occurs 176 times in the New Testament, and the context will tell us whether that's referring to a heavenly messenger or a human messenger. Generally, it refers to heavenly messengers, but many times it does refer to human messengers. For instance, in Matthew 11... And verse 10, we find that the prophecy of Malachi, which literally reads, Behold, I send my angel before your face who will prepare your way before you, is actually referring to John the Baptist. And all of our English translations will read, I send my messenger. Now, if we look back at verse 5 of chapter 1, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, Or in verse 7 of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Well, the point being that if we render the word angelos as messenger, our text reads, for to which messenger did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he makes his messengers spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And in that way, it's easy to see that there is a larger category called angel, which includes 
spiritual beings, which we would call angels, and human messengers, and it's, or human ministers, and it's because both are messengers from God. Now, at first blush, that might seem like a lot of fancy footwork and an overly complicated explanation. But notice that phrase, the word spoken through angels. What word is that referring to? Well, Paul is comparing the Old and New Testament administrations of the covenant of grace. And the Old was given to God's people through Moses, not through angels. Moses was the messenger. The books of the prophets are largely commentary or application of Moses. And so they were messengers from God as well. All of the revelation of God regarding salvation that was in the possession of the Old Testament church came through the agency of messengers, Moses and the prophets. Now the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the Gospel was proclaimed in the Old Testament as our Heidelberg Catechism question 19 puts it, by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. But in the New Testament, the Gospel is, quote, fulfilled by His only begotten Son. Now let's analyze that for a second. Actually, the full answer to question 19 says, the Holy Gospel, which God Himself first revealed in paradise and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. The important thing to notice here is that the first declaration of the Gospel was given by God Himself. And the Catechism is referring to Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in many ways, the rest of the Bible is a fulfillment of that promise. So God declared the Gospel first in this promise. And then secondly, the promise was further published by the patriarchs and prophets. When God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of lambs slain for their guilt, the Gospel was being preached. When Adam taught Abel to offer lambs for his sin, he was preaching the Gospel. When Abraham offered a lamb in place of Isaac, he was proclaiming the Gospel. When the angel of death passed over the houses covered by the blood of the Passover lamb, the Gospel was being preached. Every single time the priests offered sacrifice for the sins of the people, the Gospel was being preached. When David sings in Psalm 103 of the Lord who forgives all your iniquities, when Jeremiah proclaims His name to be the Lord our righteousness, the Gospel was being proclaimed. But it was being proclaimed through the agency of intermediaries. When Jesus came and preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, this was something completely new. This was preaching of the Gospel from the mouth of the Son Himself, the one proclaimed by all the prophecies of the Old Testament. So as we noted a minute ago, the difference between the Old and New Testaments is that in the Old Testament, the Gospel was published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, whereas in the New Testament, the Gospel is fulfilled by His only begotten Son. I wonder if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how easy it is to read the stories of the Old Testament and feel a great sense of longing for the good old days. Now that reveals something about us. It reveals that we prefer to deal with shadows rather than substance. It's like, uh, you know, we said before that to, to dream of a return to the days of the prophets 
would be like saying that you'd prefer to have the promise rather than the thing promised. If I said to you, hey, i got to go and when I come back, I will give you $1,000. Here's my promissory note. Would you rather have the promissory note or the $1,000? To prefer the promissory note would be to reject the substance of the promise. I know a man who did some studies in England, and for the first several months he was there, he was there alone because his wife was still getting her travel papers together. So during those first few months, this man, every evening, he would sit on the couch and hold a portrait of his darling wife and just stare at it in longing. When they were finally reunited, that evening they sat down on the couch, and out of habit, he picked up the picture and started looking at it, and she elbowed him and said something incredibly romantic like, I'm right here, you lunkhead. Well, of course, that's just a silly illustration that doesn't really do justice to the seriousness of what we're dealing with here, but at least it helps us see the folly. To have had a couple thousand years of gospel proclamation from Abraham till John the Baptist, and then to say, yeah, I'd rather have the promissory note rather than the substance of the promise is an intensely evil thing. It is no light sin. And that brings us to our second point, which we've kind of already walked on a little bit, direct from Christ, the Gospel proclamation. Moses and the prophets were messengers, but Christ is the Son. So in every way imaginable, He is superior. The law was proclaimed by Moses, God's messenger, but the Gospel was preached directly by Christ, who is God in the flesh. The apostles kind of stand in the same relation to Christ that the prophets do to Moses. They explain and comment on the application of the gospel, but the proclamation of it is from Christ himself. Now, throughout chapter 1, we've seen a long comparison between Christ and angels. And of course, the point to keep in mind is that the word angel denotes the larger category, which includes both the spiritual beings that wear white robes and fly and human messengers. It includes what we would think of as angels, and it includes all the human messengers sent by God to proclaim His Word. Now, for three and a half years, Jesus went around preaching the Gospel and fulfilling the prophecies of the Scripture. If you've read the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, you will have no doubt noticed that He frequently concludes a record of something Jesus did with the phrase, this was done to fulfill what the prophets said. The Old Testament contains hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah and His life and times. Now, a mathematician has calculated that the odds of a person fulfilling just 48 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's a 1 followed by 150 zeros. Jesus fulfilled 324 prophecies within the three and a half years of His earthly ministry. No prophecy about His life and ministry was left unfulfilled, and the prophecies yet to be fulfilled relate to His return and eternal reign. Now, as we say, the odds of fulfilling 48 are completely outside the realm of possibility. Fulfilling 324 puts the issue beyond doubt. For a person to turn from the Gospel is a crime worthy of eternal damnation in hell because it is to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the most clearly demonstrated fact in human history, a fact that we all instinctively know is true. Unbelief is never a matter 
of evidence or lack thereof. It is always rooted in a love of sin. For three and a half years, Jesus traveled around Judea preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and God confirmed his work by the performing of miracles. That's what our text tells us. Now, there have been plenty of screwball false prophets who have made all kinds of very audacious claims. No doubt there have been men who have claimed the the divine right to forgive sins. But none of them ever proved their right to forgive sins by healing a man lame from birth. The handful of cases in the Old Testament of miraculous bodily healings or raising someone from the dead were only done and always done to confirm the authority and commission of the messenger of God. So when Christ performs hundreds of miracles on his own authority, what else is he doing? What else is this but a divine stamp of approval? The blind man in John chapter 10 had enough sense to see this. After being interrogated by the scribes and Pharisees about his healing, he says, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. God does not perform miracles when doing so would give credence to error. In Mark 2, we read this account. Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes who were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Only God can forgive sins. But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus reasoned within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus himself explains that his authority to perform this miracle was a validation of his claim to exercise the divine right to forgive sins. He was proving that he was God by his sovereign control over a man's body, by his knowledge of the secrets of men's hearts, and by his granting of forgiveness. Now you know the scribes were right when they said only God can forgive sins. Although many of our sins are direct attacks against the lives, honor, rights, and property of our neighbors, all sins are ultimately against God. And the the guilt of sinning against God far outweighs the guilt of any act against our fellow man. When David repented of the sin of stealing another man's wife and having the man killed in order to cover or hide his, his guilt against the man's marriage bed, David said to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And when David uttered these words, he was not belittling his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. The sinfulness of any sin lies in the fact that it is an affront to God. By comparison, the guilt against God is so great that the guilt against our fellow man, even when that guilt is adultery and murder, almost doesn't even register. I said this one time before, it's like putting an anvil on the balance and a feather on the other side. 
The feather is real. Nobody disputes that. The feather may have very great importance in its own right. The feather may represent very serious matters in its own realm. But for sheer mass, compared to the anvil, the weight is negligible. Now I think our Gospel reading will help us understand the point in this point in, in, in light of the warning of our text. The vine dressers were guilty for rejecting the first messenger from the landowner. When they abused further messengers, their guilt was compounded. When they abused and killed the son, they were morally beyond remedy. There's no one higher or greater to send. If you don't listen to God, as we said to the kids earlier, who will you listen to? The only solution for their guilt was that the landowner had to execute them. Now we read that the scribes and the priests understood that this parable was spoken against them. That means they understood themselves to be the vine dressers and the vineyard to be God's church. Throughout the centuries, God had sent messengers to His church, and we hear from the mouth of Jesus Himself that they killed all His prophets. Who else did they kill? They killed the Son. As if the kingdom of God would be forfeited to them if they killed the heir. After they killed the Son, they continued their persecution, opposition to the Gospel, by persecuting His followers. When we read Acts, we see what Hebrews 2, verses 3-4 through describes. First, Christ preached the Gospel. Then, He commissioned His apostles to continue this work of preaching the Gospel. And God confirmed their commission by attending their work with the same power that Christ displayed. Throughout all of world history, there was nothing like the power that attended the ministry of Jesus. So when the apostles' ministry is accompanied by the same power, it was being made clear that God was validating their commission and displaying the vital union between their work and Christ's. Now once Paul comes on the scene, we find him essentially going from one end of the Roman Empire to the other, preaching Christ. First in the synagogues of the Jews and then turning to the Gentiles after being rejected in the synagogues. Hebrews, as we have noted many times, was written to Jewish Christians who were enduring severe persecution for following Christ. In Hebrews 10, actually, Paul notes how they had joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. You see, the daily grind of trudging along the lonely path of suffering was beginning to wear down their resolve, and many were tempted to just throw in the towel, and simply return to the perverted works righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So you can imagine what an encouragement this epistle must have been. And that consideration brings us to our third point, the inherent warning. The seriousness of the warning can be seen in those words, drift away. The natural bent of the human soul is to drift from the truth. And Paul is at pains here to make us understand that this natural tendency to drift away is not morally neutral. The natural drift is sinful. Heidelberg Catechism, question 115, calls this drift our sinful nature. Question 56 calls it my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long. So the warning of our text is not a highly specialized warning that applies to, to a small minority of people. It is a very broad warning that applies to every single one of us. We all face the temptation to make salvation our work. Even among the 
staunchest defenders of the Reformed faith, one frequently finds keystone doctrines of the faith corrupted. Men will cry justification by faith alone out one side of their mouth, and out the other side they speak of a conditional covenant in which the works of the redeemed sinner merit favor with God or earn fellowship or grant peace of conscience and assurance of salvation. The temptation to fall away is strong, and it's strong because our sinful nature wants to be its own Savior. In our heart of hearts, we all resent the idea that we are dead in sins and trespasses and therefore completely passive in redemption. And proof of that statement can be seen in the speed with which people will react with protests about the necessity of obedience. Look, nobody ever said you sin your way into heaven. What the Gospel says is that all the obedience required to get a man into heaven has been provided by Christ. And the second we say, but, but you have to, and then fill in the blank, you're demeaning the work of Christ and saying that His perfect righteousness isn't enough to save you. The temptation to turn from the pure preaching of the Gospel is strong because the natural bent of our hearts is to self-salvation. And whether we do this by perverting to Romanism or Arminianism or by believing that our works make us righteous or grant us access to fellowship with God or serve any other function than gratitude, then we are apostatizing from the Gospel. That's the warning of this text. That's the warning of Hebrews. Over and over again, we're going to find Paul saying things like he does in our text this morning. You see, it's not just that we can't be saved by our own works of righteousness. It's that it's an insult to the death of Christ to even imagine it. Proverbs says the thought of foolishness is sin. To say that anything, whether the Old Testament rituals or our own good works are required for us to be saved is to spit upon the cross of Christ and to say that His work was insufficient and has to be supplemented by us. Now that will come out with much more clarity as we work our way further through this epistle. But for now... The weight of the warning lies in the fact that those who turn from the message of the gospel of grace to works righteousness are no longer rejecting messengers. They are rejecting the Son, whom the Father has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who is the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, who upholds all things by the word of His power, who, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the burden of chapter 1. So when we read the opening words of chapter 2, we see the gravity of the warning. Christ is infinitely superior to everything proclaimed and promised in the Old Testament, and He's infinitely superior to anything or anyone by whom the Gospel was proclaimed. Now, if you couldn't ignore Moses and the prophets, if you couldn't refuse circumcision, if you couldn't abstain from the Passover, if you couldn't refrain from offering the prescribed sacrifices, if you couldn't violate the dietary laws, if you couldn't ignore, in short, ignore the Gospel published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, without the fear of being put to death, then certainly no man can reject the Gospel preached by Christ and hope to get away with it. Jesus proclaimed the Gospel. As He put it, He testified to the truth. 
The apostles testified to him, and God validated their testimony with the same power of the Holy Spirit that accompanied Jesus' ministry. That's what Paul's saying in verse 4 of our text. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Now, if you were judged as a transgressor, deserving of death, for rejecting a second-hand message, how much more severe judgment will you be liable to if you reject the first-hand message? In our text, every divine judgment against apostates is called a just reward. Every judgment recorded in Scripture, from the flood to the earth swallowing Korah to the fire consuming Nadab and Abihu to the Babylonian exile, it says more about us than, it does, than we care to admit when we call into question the fairness of divine judgment. Throughout my life, I've heard people say things like, my God would never do that. You can quote Scripture and people will say, the God I worship would never say such things. And I always say, yeah, you're right. The the lowercase g God you worship would never do or say something like that because he's a figment of your perverted imagination. The God of the Bible, on the other hand, is not a plaything to be shaped into your own image. We all scream and protest about, about fairness and justice, but in reality, no sinner really wants justice. If God dealt with everyone, strictly speaking on the principle of justice, the entire human race would be damned to eternal hellfire. God deals with His elect according to mercy. Now, He does deal with them according to justice in that their sins are covered by the death of Christ. And that's why John can say that if we confess our sins, God is just to forgive us and cleanse us. It's just of God to forgive us because Christ not only bore the punishment, the penalty for these sins, but he also supplied the righteousness that we could never have supplied. So when we read of Nadab and Abihu offering the wrong fire before God, for which he struck them dead, and we cringe as if that were too severe, we're betraying our own love of apostasy. If these judgments, which are sinful hearts, one of you is harsh and extreme, are just, Imagine how much severer judgment will come upon those who have heard the gospel in its fulfilled form and turned away from it to a salvation by works. Calvin said those who don't reverently receive the gospel disregard not only the Word of God, but also His works. To turn from the grace of God to works righteousness is damnable. No punishment is too severe. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Let us pray. We confess, O Lord, that we have not served Thee according to the measure of our knowledge and ability. We have again and again broken Thy laws and commandments. We have too much neglected Thy warnings. We have resisted the quiet influences of Thy Holy Spirit. And we have just caused to fear Thy righteous judgments. We acknowledge and bewail our unworthiness. O merciful Father, accept our penitence and give us the comforting assurance of pardon by Thy manifold and great mercies, by all the sufficient merits of Thy blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by all His agony and bloody sweat, by His bitter cross and passion, by His glorious resurrection and ascension, by His continual intercession for us at Thy right hand, and by all the graces and comforts of the Holy Ghost, deliver us. These things we ask through the merits of Thine only begotten Son, 
and in whose name we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.